The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. I walked into my office, turned off the light, locked the door, and I crawled up under my desk in a fetal position. And for the next four hours, I asked myself, Skip, how did you get here? I'm a colonel. I spent 30 months in combat zones. I'm a national wrestling champion. I'm a tough guy. How did I get here? And then very slowly, you know, I began to put these pieces together. It's the insomnia, the blue mood, the withdrawal, the loss of passion, lack of confidence, the shame, the guilt, the problems with cognition. And then after four hours, skip, you're depressed. Go get help. It's a wonderful chaos, beautifully random, messy and glorious. Solo or tandem, we work to find rest, we fight to find peace, both head and the heart. We are on a wonderful chaos and today we'll be discussing with Skip Andrapon. We're going to discuss with him depression and how to deal with it. He spent uh, over 30, what was it? I have the 30 months of his life in combat zones as an MD. And I, we're going to discuss with him how he got through that, what happened on the back end, and how he dealt with the depression. I found him when I was doing my little searches here and there. Yes, and he wrote a book which uh, was called "Wrestling: Depression Is Not for Wimps." And what I thought was really sweet about uh, having a talk with Skip was because the, I've noticed something in my life is that when I've um, the the military, it really is rough. It's rough on so many levels, and some level they have to break you down what I've noticed from the people I've interacted in order to create you into something that can be almost superhuman. Yeah. You have to move beyond your capacity as a human. So in some ways you've created a person, right. In some way that, that, that amplifies all of these skills and focus and determination and raw grit. And then you throw them in the worst of scenarios where people around them are getting killed. You, you sleep on a daily basis wondering if you're next. And then you come out of the back end of that. And then you're back in civilian, in, in civilian uh, life again. And, 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 and it's always baffled me. Like, how do you walk down the street and, uh, and just feel like, wow, I can feel safe again. You know, it, it, there was, there's films that it, I it's always. It's not even feeling safe. It, it's how do, how do you, connect to this reality yeah connect to this reality because the whole training is survival and fight yeah and tactical and being in this society. it's like you're in a war zone and then you come back and you have this conscious like wow people are dying over there and over here everyone's yeah complaining yeah that must really do something to yeah you. that must do something to you I, I remember seeing um, you know, there's these war movies that are less about the glamour of war and more about the repercussions on the back end, like Born on the Fourth of July is one of those movies where I remember a scene, even even talking about it, makes me feel emotional, where there's uh, someone who was injured in a wheelchair and all of a sudden um, fireworks go off. And the fireworks are like draw you directly back into an experience where someone can celebrate that noise you have a visceral reaction that comes from a from somewhere very deep in the back of your uh, uh your 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 brain yeah. your amygdala is charged it's like bang, that fire mm, it equals it equals you know fear or or, or active uh, uh resistance or whatever that emotion is so mm. i um 
I, you know, I, I've always think, you know, when, when the soldiers go over, you know, we spend years of of time training them. And then I'm almost what on the back end, it feels like they would see, need the same amount of time to to get them reestablished into society again. But that time isn't isn't allotted, or at least as far as I know, it isn't allotted. Yeah. So uh, so when w- w- like there's no money in that, Andy. I understand that, but and so when Skip was wrote this book, and you and you see, I mean, just look at Skip. You know, when we bring him on, he's a proper gentleman. He's wearing like you know, we're all sloppy. You know, you know that he's a colonel. I don't even know what higher. I, I mean, I don't know where he could have gone from there. I mean, maybe you become a general. I don't know what the ranking is, but there's not many. He couldn't have gone much higher, and he was an MD. So I don't know what his background was, but I, he must have seen real horrible situations in that time. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I, I, that was the reason why I wanted to, to bring him on and discuss how he navigated and, and it's such a manly world because the military is so manly. It's like the, it's like the, the epitome of masculinity and then to, and then to admit to depression is one of those hard pills to swallow because in some ways you're, you're now not the, the, the man, right? It's almost, um, when we talk about the dark, the Dark masculine. Yeah, the dark masculine. For those that don't know, sometimes we use terms like that. It would be the dark masculine as what? For those it, who... It's, it's, it's the disc, disconnected masculine. So what is that? So you have to explain words like that to people who are... It's in general us. a man who is not connected to himself, his his core, his emotions. And he, he kind of lives a lot in his head and pretty much doesn't have a direction. So... It will be the difference between living from your heart, connected yeah. to your penis and yeah. your mind, and only living from your penis. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. For those people who wonder our, our internal languaging that some people out there don't use. Um, and we have uh, already I- Iris Alfer, who is from Israel, says, I have visceral reactions to the sirens in the Netherlands for fire drill every first Monday of the month. You could imagine. I, I also have it, even though I've had no experience with it, because I imagine what is it like to have a, a, a siren going off and thinking to yourself, there's going to be bombs dropping on us. That's a signal, you know, and she, she coming from Israel, that was what, what she had. So yeah. I completely understand that. So yeah, that's a little bit of the, the, uh, yeah, the lead into today's show. Should we bring him on? We should bring him on. Colonel. I don't know. I don't know if we call him former Colonel, retired Colonel, Skip Mondragon. 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 Thank you for coming. My pleasure, Andy and Bombos. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Is there anything that we said or what we started with that was out of sync with what, what reality is or what do we interpret things incorrectly? You guys were right on. Mm. I, I was so impressed by what you said about the dark masculinity, because that is absolutely true not just in the military, but other circles. Yeah. Because this tough guy persona. Yeah. And that's what I, that's really what I embody. You see, I've been involved with the sport of wrestling for over 50 years. Mm. And a little background on that. I was bullied as a child. Mm. I'm not a big man. I was the smallest kid in my class. Growing up, I was shy. I was awkward. I was totally athletically inept. I didn't know how to catch a ball. I didn't know how to kick a ball. I didn't know how to throw a ball. I didn't know how to run. Mm. I was weak. And we moved a lot. So I was an easy target for bullies. I mean, it was like blood in the water for sharks. Mm. I, I never articulated it myself, but you spoke about my childhood just now. Yeah. Wow. So you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, Bumbos. And because of that, and I I can tell you some incidents on the playground. We go out to choose teams. And I was the last person chosen Mm. in the class. And then this chorus would go up. Ah, why does he have to be on our team? Mm. Fourth grade. I recall our teacher taking us out at, I don't know how often, but different times during the course of the year to test us. 
to take the whole class out, take us to the chin-up bars. Boys had to do chin-ups and the girls did this bent arm hang mm. for time. I would just dread for my name to be called. Oh, oh, oh. Finally say, all right, Skip, it's your turn. I jump up on that lowest bar and I would grunt and kick and pull with all my might. I couldn't do one chin-up. Meanwhile, listening to the snickers and laughter and kids just making little remarks and just feeling the shame. So this was my childhood. Mm. Finally, I get to eighth grade. I get in the wrestling room and I think, you know, I think I could be good at this and made the varsity team went on. I thought I didn't win a match for two, two years and I really started winning, ended up with a very stellar high school career, two-time district champion, uh, state runner-up. I won multiple state freestyle championships, placed in national tournaments, and ended up my high school career as an honorable mention All-American. So I took on that persona as a tough guy. I would outwork guys in the weight room, and I, I could – I know – had that. I'm tough. And you carry that over through your lifetime into the army, removing them, you know, amongst these guys, tough guys. Yeah, it outwork guys on the uh, PT field, physical training field, young guys on the army physical fitness test. That was my persona. Mm. And then you think about the army motto, be all you can be. <laughs> yeah. So that, that you talk about that dark side of that. And that's part of what caused or, or delayed my recognition that I was sinking into that deep, dark pit of depression. Mm. So it certainly played a role. When, when we, when we're on the show, we often will, you know, talk about, when we begin to identify with a thing where that becomes to define us, where actually, and, and often the, 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 the challenge is a piece of you has to die so that another person within you can emerge. So, so like, I assume that that part like went on for a great deal of your life because you would have had to have been tough through the, uh, through the service. Oh yes. No doubt about it. And did you, when you're in there, in that point, like being the strong person, did you feel like, did you, did you notice or feel that, did you feel disconnected? Did you have any awareness that something doesn't feel right here? Or was it really, you were so into it, you're like, I am this, and this is who I am, and, and that, or how, how was it for you? It's not that I was always so disconnected, because I'm also an empath, <laughs> and I like to serve. That, that's also my given nature. So... I love serving. And that's always been part of my life. My role in my family, I'm the third of eight children, the oldest of five brothers. And part of my role, I always took, had to take care of my younger brothers. Mm. Whenever we were growing up, I was in charge of my younger brothers. And even as we grew up, this role that I play in our family is I'm one of the caretakers. I'm one of the spokespersons. Mm. The other is my oldest sister, Roma, and there's me. And we play those roles. So that's a role that I play in my family. Mm. And you think about it. I take care of my family, my immediate family. I take care of my extended family. I take care of my patients. So I've been this caretaker. I take care of my medical staff. I've been this caretaker. And that was another thing that got me into trouble is I was taking care of others at the ex expense of not taking care of myself. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that that theme obviously drags through a lot of our, our shows, especially with the eldest in the family. Somehow the role is that, especially if it's a dysfunctional family, the oldest child will replace the parent that isn't there the, that that's at least something that i've seen a lot in our mm. in our shows i want to ask him about when you're in the army mm. who did you need to become to to 
to be part of that pack. Hmm. Well, you have to understand that the medical core is a unique branch in of itself because we are these caretakers. Yes, we're soldiers, but we play this unique role of caring for soldiers, mm. of advocating for soldiers and their families. And we have this role that we do this, what we call in garrison. So when we're here in the States and then in the field and when we're deployed. So when we are in those environments, when we're in those combat zones, not that we don't treat patients in those combat zones, but that's a different beast in of itself. So who did I have to become? Well, you have the luxury of more time. You have the luxury of relationship building when you're in garrison, because then you have patients that you see over time mm. and you see repeatedly, you find out about their families, uh, you get to know them well. Mm -hmm. And one of those things of getting to know a patient well, you can recognize there's a change when they walk through that door mm. because you know them well. Yeah. Even before you ask, how are you doing? You see it written all over them. Oh, you wow. So you're, so you're sorry. So you're telling me that there would be military personnel who you would be in contact with before they go and get deployed. And then you would experience them on the back end of that experience. Well, yes, that I would know them before they're deployed. I wouldn't necessarily typically be deployed with them unless they were with my unit that I deployed with. But yes, then you'd see him on the back end. That so, must have been that must have been an overwhelming experience because I've noticed that when I experience one person, like I never treat a person as if they're the same. Like I, they are whoever they are the moment I meet them, and I don't know who they are. So in some ways, it must have been like you were meeting two different people. I'm guessing. Yes and no, because mm -hmm. you know those experiences change you, mm -hmm. and having been deployed myself you know, the stresses and the strains. And the other unique part of that is when they come back, you see these reunions that are televised, yeah, that are on YouTube, etc. Yeah, And they show these idyllic reunions where people are in tears and so forth. And these people that are watching this, that are typically, oftentimes civilians and they think, Oh, everything is hunky dory. Everything yeah. is wonderful. Now, uh, isn't it great? They're back home, but that's when the work is beginning now with that reintegration because their families have changed. The soldier has changed. And oftentimes that soldier has gone through some horrible things, yeah. some things that, uh, you know, war is horrible. And as it's been said, there, there are no victors in war, just survivors. And so the soldiers dealing with that, the guilt, the, you know, could be survivor's guilt, the things they've had to do on the battlefield, the soldiers they've lost, uh, all of these things. Plus, there's this other side of guilt, uh, of grief. You've lost that time out of your family's life. Mm. six months, a year. There was 2007, 2008, when there was this surge, there were some soldiers that were extended to 18 months. Mm. And you lose that time out of your family's life. Yeah. You don't get that back. Anniversaries, birthdays, holidays, graduations, your kids are, and your family is growing, is changing. That's lost. Yeah. You don't get to experience that. Your kids don't get to experience that. Your kids are little. You don't get to tuck them in at bed at night, read them those bedtime stories, pray with them before they fall asleep, sit around the dinner table with them, go outside and play with them, take them on a vacation. You don't get that. I haven't even thought about the kids must have so much anxiety because they never know day to day if their, their parent is going to come home, right? Right. The kids... Yeah. And the spouse, 
Yeah. And then you think about it, that spouse, we have five kids and my wife's back home tending to the kids. So the first time I yeah. deployed, we had two and she was expecting our no, we had three <laughs> and she was expecting our fourth. Wow. And then, and then the next time we had five and of course going through, we had five children, but at one interval, our oldest was out of the house. And the last time I deployed, it was just our youngest was home. He was the only one in the house. But, you know, when you're home alone yeah. like that and raising kids and dealing with them, and then when you have teenagers, you know, uh, two and three teenagers that you're contending with all by yourself. So young children by yourself, a mixture of teens and young yeah. and teenagers and pre-adolescents. Uh, you know, she's the one. Having to do it all, manage the household, manage the finances, take care of everything, take care of the kids, and then deal with the uncertainty. Is my husband all right? Is he going to come home all right? Is he going to even come home? Yeah. Did you, I mean, Mm. you were an MD. So when you were there, are there people that are getting shot and having terrible things happen to them and then coming to you for like quick, whatever, I don't know what the term is used, but for emergency, uh, 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 operations? Is, is that what you absolutely, were actually Absolutely. Absolutely. In 20, 2003, 2004, I was with the 21st CASH, 21st Combat Support Hospital. We were in Mosul. Mm. And we were there where the 101st Airborne Division in that sector, in the northern sector of Iraq was. And they would bring their injured soldiers to us. And we would take care of them. In some cases, severely injured, where limbs would have to be amputated. Uh, they yeah. would be on the verge of death due to blood loss, this type of thing. So other times, soldiers would be dead. I mean, when, when I see that in like films, like uh, that's when my heart sinks because the it's almost like an overwhelming incapacity that there's something going on that's so immediate and tragic. And that was what you had to deal with for 30 30 months? I mean, that, that- well, every, every situation wasn't there. Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the first time, thankfully, we didn't have the, many of those type of casualties. It yeah. was because of the severe air campaign. We really had a paucity of casualties, unlike we thought, because if we had had a ground assault early on, we were projecting scores yeah, yeah, thousands and thousands, you know, maybe a hundred thousand casualties because of the Iraqi forces, but yeah. because of that prolonged air bombardment, yeah. we hardly saw any uh, casualties whatsoever during that time. Mm-hmm. But then yeah. first time in Iraq, yes. Second time in Iraq, the position I was in didn't treat casualties directly treated soldiers really in a, in a different capacity. And I was yeah. in an advisor during that time. So it was a different capacity yeah. that I worked in that but second you, time I was in the room. Could, could you tell me how, cause I can't fathom this. Like my brain can't comprehend the fact that someone's just bring, like they're going to lose an arm or their leg or their face has been really damaged. Like how, so how is well, that for you? Early in my career, at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, I'd probably been in the Army about a year and a half. There was a training accident out on the artillery range. So among some trainees, there was an inerrant shell mm. that landed near some trainees and their sergeant that was over them. So they brought in three or four severely injured casualties, some others that were less injured that we were able to treat and put on the the wards. But there were two in particular that I remember that were horribly injured. And they had prolonged stays in the intensive care unit and were bleeding profusely. In fact, one depleted our blood bank we were requesting units from, so Fort Hill, Oklahoma is in Lawton, Oklahoma, in the southeast corner of Oklahoma. 
we were requesting blood products to be flown from Oklahoma City to keep this soldier alive. And we were up, myself and another colleague, taking care of these two soldiers from mid-afternoon through the night into the morning. Uh, And meanwhile, you know, they had gone to surgery, come back to the ICU and on all kinds of medications to keep their blood pressure up, control things. You're adjusting flu IV fluids to keep their electrolytes adjusted, Mm -hmm. monitoring things closely. You have them on mechanical ventilators. So we had that experience. Now what happens in those situations, you have to compartmentalize. You can't be thinking this soldier's maimed. This soldier's got this horrible wound to his leg. This soldier's uh, so horribly injured here. You're thinking my job is to do everything in my power, working with this medical team to save the life and limb of this soldier with everything I have at my disposal. So now you're using all your training, everything you can draw upon to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Hmm. So we worked around the clock and with everything we had, and we did save the one soldier's life that was bleeding Hmm. and depleted all our blood products, as he said, having products flown in. And after a matter of days, transferred him to our mm-hmm. large medical center down in San Antonio, Texas, Brook Army Medical Center. The other one likewise went, and we thought he was going to lose his leg because it was so horribly injured. Yeah. But there were several months later, he came back, that soldier walked into the hospital, into the ICU, and unfortunately, I didn't get to see him. But he was thanking the nurses there Mm. for the care he received because they were able to salvage his leg. And the the question is, so you've had that experience. You now go home to your wife. Like, who are you before and after that experience? Well, it hurts. It hurts. Whenever you have a soldier that is injured like that. Whenever you have a soldier that dies, there's a part of you that is so deeply touched. And when they die, there's a little part of you that dies. That's, that's just the way it is. There's no getting around it because you're there to help. That's what we're about to preserve life, to treat, to care for. And, it, it comes with the territory. And that pain that you share now, I, I'm also getting teary-eyed because I, uh, I feel very, the pain I was asking you because I could feel the pain in myself when I asked you the question. And then I asked myself, who's there for you then? Hmm. Certainly my wife uh, was always, always there. But there's part of that that I think at the time and as you go through you're not able to identify, and I think it comes with what you guys were talking about, that uh, dark side of masculinity or that inability to uh, identify those deep emotions at the time. And it's only in retrospect that you realize how deeply you were affected by that, how deeply that touched me. And you press on because now you're still busy taking care of that soldier, trying to preserve his life, trying to make sure he's taken care of. And you've got a lot of other patients that you're taking care of. You have other responsibilities. You have your family to take care of. You have a, you have a department that you're in charge of. You have all these responsibilities on top of that. So again, it's this compartmentalization mm-hmm. that you don't have time to breathe. No, I was going to say you you, you learn how to survive. What we use. skip? It's almost as if if you let the emotion in, you can't do your job. Mm. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, you you it, break. There wasn't that time and space to grieve and to step back and process this and say, what's the impact on me? Yeah. How, how is this impacting me now? And if I don't process this, what's going to be that long, long-term impact? Um, as you're speaking, in my experience, or at least in my body, when I, when I start to share things from my past, mm. I can't help but feel everything. It's like I'm reliving it. How, mm. how are you mm. feeling right now? Yeah, it, it makes me sad. It hurts, you know, because it, and I hadn't thought about that incident till you asked about that, uh, Andy. I, I don't know. Maybe a few decades that I hadn't recalled that incident. Mm. It was buried there in the past. Mm. But again, very real. And when you ask, well, how, how do you deal with that? And you've never seen it. Well, I had seen it. I had seen it. Where you were allowing yourself to be present with the emotion and not like rationalizing it and chit-chatting and like kind of talking over is for me one of these beautiful balances in life. Like how do I allow myself to be with the pain that's there and and not succumb to it? So it's almost this par- the, the, the paradox is that I'm strong and simultaneously weak. And, and, and it's that when I lose that balance in myself, I see the strength is me talking about things so I don't have to feel them. And the weakness is I wallow in the pain so much that I don't even know how to survive. So I just wanted to share that it was beautiful to be with you and, and see how you held both of those spaces so beautifully and allowed us to be with you there. So thank you. Really, really grateful for yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming there was a breaking point for you, though, at some point. Yeah. And, and years later, you know, I'd have, you know, ups and downs, but nothing to uh, the extent there. There was um, a very difficult time when I came back from the 2003-2004 that uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom from the 21st cash because I got back and I had been the, the last three, three and a half months that we were there with the 21st cash, I was the officer in charge. So I was in charge of 220 personnel. I was in charge of all the medical care. I was in charge of the air evacuation. I was in charge of force security, making sure the hospital and patients were safe. I was in charge of the logistics, making sure we had every all the supplies, the food, the fuel, everything we needed. Mm. The buck stopped here. Mm. But I had a great staff, so they kept me on track because I didn't know about a lot of this stuff. I didn't know how to get it done. But mm. My staff did. You know, they ha- filled in the gaps that I didn't know. I knew how to deliver great medical care. That's mm. what I knew about. And they filled in all the other yeah. gaps to make sure we provided the best of patient care. See, I set out for four goals when I took that job. One, to make sure we provided excellent patient care. Two, to ensure we had seamless transfer of care with the 67th CASH, the 67th Combat Support Hospital. Three, to get all of our personnel home safe. And four, to honor God. Mm-hmm. We did provide great patient care. We did seamlessly transfer with the 67th CASH. We did get all of our 220 personnel home safe. And in my heart, I did feel that I honored God. So mm-hmm. achieved all of that. We got home, landed, got off the plane, and I felt like kissing the ground. Because now this 200-pound gorilla was off my back. Mm-hmm. We weren't in danger of being shot at, of having IEDs, of rockets and mortars, uh, landing in our hospital and injuring our patients or personnel. We weren't having to uh, deal with that uncertainty. Plus, I knew all my personnel were home now. They weren't facing that danger. I'd love to to go and push to back to Bambos' question. 
And it's a, it's funny because even as you answer, uh, laughingly, I see that you're also sharing how you took care of others. And actually, our questions are how you took care of yourself. Okay. So, so where did the depression show up in your life? Okay. Well, going back to this incident in 2003, 2004, uh, very quickly to finish that story, mm-hmm. like I said, I wanted to kiss the ground when you got on American soil. And then I was... So I was very elated, and then I find myself very sad, in tears, and then I find myself angry as could be. And this went on for a few weeks, and I couldn't figure out what's going on. I'm home. I'm safe. I'm going, you know, I'm crawling in next to my sweetheart every night. I'm there with my kids. Why am I angry? What is going on here? There was a colleague that said, you know, Skip, anger is a secondary emotion. I thought, hmm. I was talking to another colleague a matter of days later. You know, Skip, anger is a secondary emotion. What did they mean by that, if I may ask? That that idea that anger is not really what's going on. There's another emotion behind it, but you're expressing it as anger. So I sat with that idea and I prayed about it. And then I understood. I was grieving. I was grieving about those soldiers we lost. I was grieving about these soldiers that came back that had, you know, wounds, you know, lost limbs, uh, were disfigured, uh, you know, these things. Soldiers that would have PTSD and uh, these other injuries, you know, that weren't visible. I, I was grieving. I was grieving the fact that I lost a year out of my family's life. Mm. And so there was this grief that I couldn't get in touch with. And then once I got in touch with that, I could begin to properly process it. And I wasn't so yeah. angry. Now I could be happy about the fact that, yes, I was home and I was with my wife and family. But then I could understand why the tears were there, uh, there. And what that anger was really about. So that was 2003, 2004. Now, fast forward to 2013. I'm getting preparing to leave the Army at the end of 2014. Mm. I had returned from my last deployment in 2012. So a lot of things are going on. I'm preparing to leave the Army. I'm having to think about a, a new job. I'm having to think about getting a Texas state medical license. I've been in the army at that point, 25 years. When I would leave the army, I would be in the army 26 and a half years. That's all I've known is military medicine. Our last child left the home in 2012. So we've been empty nesters. Thank you very much. That was a nice change. But this uncertainty. And then there were some things going on in my department that I took on personally. I couldn't have done anything about it, but it was affecting our graduate medical education, our teaching of uh, our residents and visiting medical students. And I took that personally. Plus, it was going to affect patient care. And again, I took that on, being that empath, and I would ruminate on that. Mm. My sleep began to unravel there. I couldn't fall asleep and insomnia started getting worse. I started that guilt and that shame, these negative thoughts. I was working with a clinical psychologist to work on my insomnia. Now, these things just began to compound. My mood just began to circle downward. And then you compound that with, I had three surgeries in seven months. Why? Because I wasn't taking care of myself. I was taking care of everybody else. And now I was getting ready to leave the army. So it's like, I got to get these things taken care of. And each of those surgeries, unfortunately, I had complications. And each of them just further disrupted my normal routine. Mm. My eating, I ate very healthy. My intense, I mean intense exercise, and further disrupted my sleep. So my sleep was already bad. Now it's even worse. 
And I used exercise, what I came to understand, to control my anxiety. If you would have asked me, are you an anxious person? No, no, I'm not an anxious person. <laughs> but I used to deal with it with this intense exercise. So all this is getting worse and worse. My mood, my sleep, this guilt, this shame, and then my cognition. I couldn't remember what I read five minutes before. Mm. I couldn't recall names of medications. I'm talking to a patient trying to recall a medical syndrome. And I can't pull that up in my brain. Mm. I think I'm suffering pre-senile dementia. In fact, I contacted the chief of behavioral health and I said, Joe, can you get me an appointment? Explain to him what was going on. Got into the neuro uh, psychologist. They did the testing and said, no, you don't have this, albeit some of your scores are a little lower than what we would think for somebody of your training and edu education level, but it's probably due to the stress and certainly the insomnia is playing a role. <sighs> so this is going on. And meanwhile, the mood is getting bluer and bluer and bluer. These negative thoughts. You don't deserve to be a colonel. You're a fake. You've let the army down. You've let your department down. You've let your family down. Who's going to want to hire you? Mm. And that becomes this endless loop. It's like this, just this playlist that just incessantly plays over in your mind. Confidence is in the toilet, come indecisive, and shame and guilt. Just withdraw, don't want to engage in things, and lose any interest in my passions, what we call anhedonia in medical terms. Skip, um, what you're telling us is you got lost in story, which was in your mind, just to simplify it. And it went down a downward spiral, negative spiral. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's, that's a great way of summing it up. Yes. And it just... And you couldn't see the light. <laughs> no, it was... Exactly. It was... I, I felt like I was in this deep, deep, dark pit. In fact, I describe it to people. It was like being in this deep, deep, dark pit, slogging through a foot of mud with my head in a cloud and way, 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 way down this long tunnel. There was a little speck of light. That's what it felt like. I'm going to assume that you it did cross your mind to end your life. Thankfully, I never had those thoughts. Ah. I never had those thoughts. For um, I never lost complete hope, but I at times, uh, you know, I'd feel so alone. And I, I've all you know, since the age of sixteen, uh, I've had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's been the bedrock of my life. But I, I couldn't sense any presence of God. I felt like my prayers bounced off the ceiling. Mm. And throughout that time, my prayers were, Lord, Lord, please deliver me from this darkness, please. Mm. It was just such a dark and horrible place. What's the moment when the downward spiral turns into an upward spiral? What had to change so that you actually could get out of this rut you were in? Well, there were two incidents. The first was April 17, 2014. I walked into my office at work, and I, I got there before anybody else, put my lunch away, turned on the lights, stepped into my office, turned off the light, locked the door, closed the blinds, turned off my phones, and I crawled up under my desk in a fetal position. And for the next four hours, I asked myself, Skip, what are you doing? doing? Skip, how did you get here? What happened? He's, I was thinking to myself, I'm a colonel. I've spent 30 months in combat zones. I'm a national wrestling champion. I'm a tough guy. How did I get here? What happened? I, I just, four hours, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. And then very slowly, you know, I began to put these pieces together. It's, I become this observer participant. Mm. The insomnia, the blue mood, the withdrawal, loss of passion, the lack of confidence, the shame, the guilt, the problems with cognition, and many other symptoms. 
And then after four hours, boom, skip, you're depressed. Go get help. So that was one of those turning points. And what did help look like? I called up the chief of behavioral health. Well, first, I went down to my primary care clinic, asked for an appointment. They told me it would be next week. I said, okay, schedule it with the clinical psychologist. Got up to my office, thought, I don't want to wait till next week. So I called the chief of behavioral health. It helps when you're a colonel and you're chief of your department. And Joe, this is what's going on. Can you get me an appointment? I was seeing a clinical psychologist that afternoon, and she did a very thorough evaluation, including assessing for suicide and corroborated the diagnosis of major depression. And they set me up to start seeing a, another clinical psychologist that became my therapist for the next, throughout the time then I was at Eisenhower Army Medical Center. Wow. And then I saw my primary care physician shortly after that. She did an evaluation. Yeah, that was about a month later. And she recommended that I start on medication. And then eventually I was also then seeing a psychiatrist. So I say I saw I had the A team taking care of me medically. Mm. So that was going on. But about. A month. How, how, did it, how did it feel to be cared for? Yeah, that would have been a big transition. That was a transition because that admission, you know, I'm broken. Yeah. I'm a wounded warrior. I need help. But it was actually a relief because I, I was so broken. I was so depleted. I could not function. I was under that desk in a fetal position and I could not go on any longer. I knew I needed help yeah. and I was ready to get that help. It was, here I am, please yeah. help me. So yeah. it was a relief. And, and you mentioned there were two pivotal moments. There were two pivotal. The second one came Six weeks or so later, my, my brother, Chris, who I call my alter ego, my youngest brother, we had, you know, been talking throughout this time and he knew I was still struggling. He, and he called very excited. He had been to a Bible study with Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham. And Franklin had taught about suffering that day with a group of men in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the gist of it was, he said that if Christ suffered so brutally upon the cross on our behalf, why do we think we should be immune from suffering? And it brought to mind a scripture from Philippians chapter three, verse 10. Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. I knew that scripture. I had prayed that scripture probably hundreds of times in my walk with Christ. But while I was suffering, what was I praying? Lord, please, please deliver me from this darkness. But over the course of two days, my prayer shifted from, Lord, please deliver me. To Lord, what would you have me learn? And how might he use it to help others? And with that, my recovery... You know, there was certainly an improvement in there, but it was this change uh, perspective yeah. that I, if I have to deal with suffering, I can. Mm -hmm. If I have to live in this, I can. But beyond that, there was this knowing I am going to have to share my message. Mm. I am called to share this message. I am compelled to share this message. And so I began to write down lessons I had learned and lessons I was learning, knowing that I was going to share my message. We have Bola Long, who's with us as well right now. He has a totally off uh, a question, not okay. directly connected. But sure. when I read it, it hit me as a very emotional question. Is that he said, and I'll put it on as well as we read it. He said, 
I want to know how does a soldier that did not lose his fellow soldiers but killed many uh, others of another country feel like? Mm. Like so, so in in some way, you know, we of course we have to in some ways dehumanize another individual in order for us to be okay to kill them. But afterwards, we can't deny that that person also had a family, also right. was probably a, a very good person who was just fighting for his country. So right. how does that, how does, how do people process that? You know, that's certainly a difficult thing. There is this concept, however, of a just war, mm-hmm. but there's no doubt about it. Soldiers struggle with that and they oftentimes then have to see counselors, have to see chaplains and have to work through that. How, how do I live with myself, Chaplain? How do I live with myself, a doctor, when I've done this? What, what is it? And, and it's this idea that you were there following orders, serving your country, looking to liberate this people under this oppressive regime that brutalized its people for decades, brutalized it, subjugated them, took away their rights. And you were there to help them. Yeah. So it's, it's again, trying to give them a perspective that they weren't there to, to kill just for the sake of killing. Yeah. But they were there on behalf of their country and actually on behalf of the people there to help. So it's again, that perspective and trying to reconcile what their mind is uh, in their mind and and to again, reconcile here and here. We had a really good uh, person on that was uh, from uh, a few, few Neil uh, Gagan who does uh, it was Andy's favorite show. It wasn't my favorite, but it actually, when every guest comes on now, I start to see it in light of what he shared on our show, which is that we have a neural pathway that connects to what that means to us. And if mm-hmm. we want to heal, there's the way of healing is associated another thing with that neural pathway. So in some ways, you know, if someone wants to heal from uh, feeling like they killed an innocent person, right? that would be the thing that they would have as a negative neural pathway. You'd actually have to find a way to have, make them make, make peace with it and come to the, come to it, rewrite the story, rewrite the story in their head, which would be, I actually was freeing them uh, in giving them an opportunity to have a, a better life. I mean, that would be the narrative that would make, that would mm-hmm. give you peace. I would, I would think. Yeah. Either way, it cannot. I can't imagine it be easy. There was this film. I'm sure you are very aware of it, which dealt with the mental health that came out. I think it was American Sniper. I'm not sure if that was the name of yeah. it. And and the, the the character in that, I remember there was a scene that was one of the hardest scenes to watch. Was when um, he was acting as the sniper, and then a child picked up one of the. Um, um, I'm not sure what it was, military, but a, a rocket oh. launcher, and, and 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 he was sitting with this moment where he wasn't sure if the child was going to use this rocket launcher, and the closer he got to use it, he would have had to have killed that child, and uh, and sitting with that as a as what you know, I'm waking up this morning, and that might be something that I have to do. That that just messes with your mind, you know. I just I just couldn't imagine that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. To save the soldiers, but now you've killed a child that you know, you'd have to live with that the rest of your life. That would be really, really horrendous. Right. Yeah. Or the so, converse of that, you don't you don't shoot a child or you don't shoot a woman and they've got an explosive vest yeah. and they approach fellow soldiers, the explosion the explosive vest goes off and now they kill your, your friends, your buddies. Exactly. And now you live with that saying, why didn't I pull the trick? Yeah. So there's both sides to that. Of now course. you're having to say, why didn't I do that? Hmm. Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do my duty? These are the rules of engagement. And I could have saved 
yeah. my advice. When you shared the, the, the last book I wrote was called The Wounded Healer, and it was uh, very much in line with what you spoke of a moment ago, where you said, basically, my road to healing was acting as a messenger to help others who were suffering from the same. So um, I, I see that. And as you wrote your book, and now you're here with us now, and of course, I'm sure you're advocating in, in other arenas as well. Like, how is it for you now? Like, where, where is it in your life? The, the, this this depression like how do you interact with it it runs at a low level you know and, and in retrospect i probably have i know i've had a little bit this thread throughout my life mm. and and there may be a little bit larger peaks but nothing to the extent and they're short-lived of what i experienced back in 2013 2014 mm. but i can i can sit with it I can deal with it. I have tools to deal with it. That uh, tools that you know, I, I talk about you know, with the lessons that I learned and and talk about these in detail. Mm. So I'm equipped. I know what's going on, and I know that I can face that. I'm confident of that. Plus, I understand that you can't go it alone. That you need to ask for help. And one of the things I talk about is you have to have a team. Yeah. And I talk about that team, the power of your team, your family, your friends, and your faith. And all of those are important to help you. Yeah. And ha- learning how to ask. You know, I need some help. I'm hurting. Would you would you talk to me? Would you spend some time with me? Would you do this? And and so learning. So I, I continue to see a therapist. Mm-hmm. I continue to take medication. I, Bombos and I were talking in this idea of being kinder to yourself, better self-care. So I, I'm gentler to myself. I yeah. speak more kindly to myself. I don't grind and push and drive myself the way I used to before. Yeah, yeah. I don't exercise like a fiend <laughs> the way I did in the past. Of course, I'm older now too. You know, I'm 65 years old. Case in point, I I went to uh, a practice with our local high school team. Uh, I'd been uh, not been on the wrestling mats for two years and went with them. And foolishly, I said I would scrimmage for with a couple of the kids working in with some takedowns. Yeah. Oh my word! They ate my luncheon. You know, like, they come home and I was like, oh my gosh, right? I had some ice on this shoulder, and, and then I went and got a hot tub and poured in some Epsom salts, and I'm soaking in that. And, and I am sore in so many different places. It's like, oh my word. Different places. I, I'm, and I remember, no wonder wrestling is such a great all around workout. I'm yeah. Thinking, God, there's not, there's not many muscles. Even my hands are sore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, just about my whole body it just is so sore. That was Monday, and I'm thinking, God, I'm probably going to be sore still on Friday that I might finally start feeling yeah. better. But I'm laughing at thinking, Skip, what were you thinking? Mm. You haven't been working out real hard. Yeah. And you want to get out with these young, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds and roll around on the mat, you know, when I'm in good shape. I can handle that, (laughs) that kind of shape. I was laughing at myself and thinking, what were you thinking? And I kind of wrote, I was journaling about it and I was, I was writing, (laughs) you know, when you're proud, you know, pride cometh before a fall. (laughs) Bambos was out like, jogging in the coldest weather that we had in the Netherlands. And he tells me, Andy, I can't feel the end of my fingers. Oh, so, no. And then it was like, I think maybe a week later, he's got like feeling back in his fingers. That's kind of his extreme version of your uh, wow. your your life. Yes. <laughs> oh, gee. Wow. Well, we come to the end of our hour. So thank you very much for being with us. It was uh, really beautiful to spend this time with you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I thank you for having me on this show.
Did you not spend the whole time reflecting on how similar your lives were? Because all I was thinking was, wow, I, I, I actually am hearing <laughs> your life through Skip's mouth. Did you feel the same? Yeah, parts, definitely. Yeah, I could see, it, at least for me, when he was sharing about the 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 exercise and using exercise as a way to calm his system i often that that's what we've discussed mm. and uh and i found that as a as a big overlap but how was that is that did you did you could you connect with that or was that it was a different than what you experienced it's different okay but i i do remember i was in the military for two and a half years that was enough for me yeah <laughs> But uh, yeah, what a beautiful uh, mm. journey we went on. You know, it's always hard. I always, when I when I saw Skip was in the military, I have also become accustomed to interacting with people even after the military. And there's a very formalized way that I've uh, experienced them speaking. So being with Skip and seeing that uh, that he was fully present with us was really really a beautiful uh, a beautiful uh, experience. Yeah, yeah, cool. Somehow he uh, he tapped into his humanity. Yeah, and still and still maintain the frame, but yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's the beauty of it, right? Is that yeah. and that's I think the challenge we face in life is how do we not throw out the baby with the bathwater? How do we keep our strength and allow the weakness? And that's the paradox. That's the that's the challenge that we face in life is we become too much of one or the other, and that gets us stuck. Yeah. yeah. So where are we going to do it tomorrow, Andy? We're going to do it again and again and again on a wonderful chaos. It's a wonderful chaos. We like it that way.